Okay, I think we better make a start. Um, and you can help me. I, when I preach, I usually have somebody else that looks after the PowerPoint because I get lost in what I'm saying and then wouldn't click it. But we're, we're in that situation. So if you see me turn over one of these sheets, or it just looks like what's on the screen bears no relationship to what I'm saying, throw something at me and I'll <laughs> click a click and see if that's, I'm doing the right thing. Why am I still passionate about preaching? Uh, I have to confess, when I was given this title, I uh, went back and said, can I change it? Um, but I found out there's a series of sermons which is I'm passionate about, or still passionate about. Because um, I had some questions with that title. It's like, why ask me to do this? Uh, who will come? And uh, what should be the aim of a seminar with this title? I wondered if the why was a bit like being invited to meet. Uh, this is Fuja Singh. He is the oldest marathon runner ever. He started running marathons at the age of 90 and only stopped when he reached 100. I mean, you don't go and see him uh, to get tips on how to run. You don't go to see it because he's going to be the fastest you've ever seen. You go just because it's like, it's odd. And it's like, you know, after nearly 50 years of preaching regularly, here's a man who's passionate about preaching. How odd. Let's go and see what that's like. <laughs> and who? I think, who's going to come to a seminar, which is to hear someone say, I'm still passionate about preaching. I mean, those who are passionate about preaching will think it's unnecessary for them to come. And those who aren't passionate about preaching probably won't bother to come. Um, so before we do anything else, why don't you share why you're here with a person next to you? Especially if it's, like, if it's not your wife, that would be good, or your partner, or your close friend, just somebody else. And you might add to that, if you are a preacher, when did you start preaching? How long ago? How often do you preach? But the real question is, why are you here? Okay, you've got a couple of minutes to do that. Or maybe just a minute. Okay, how many people have been preaching for more than 10 years? Well done. How many How many be preaching only in the last couple of years? Anyone here that doesn't actually get a chance to preach or teach? Oh. Well, that might be nice to find out. Why did you come? 
Would it? Um, is it the wrong song? No. <laughs> Well, thanks for coming. Thanks for coming. And um, let's find out somebody else. Um, Shagan, why did you come to my seminar? Want to keep learning. I'm a preacher. I preach regularly, but I want to keep learning. Yeah, want to keep learning. It's good. People who are passionate love to keep learning. When I was thinking about um, what a seminar like this might be able to do. Um, you could give like, theories about passion and preaching. It would be like describing how do you light a fire. And um, that doesn't actually set anyone on fire. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to do that. I want to tell you really why I am passionate about preaching. And hopefully that might stir that up in you. Especially sometimes my passion has all, not always been as strong as it is at other times. Sometimes if there's relational conflict, or I'm really weary or pressed, then I'm not so passionate, but it is a thing that uh, keeps me going. And so I hope to fuel the passion, to stir it up, and maybe ignite the passion in people where it's latent. So Dan here is my co-elder at Exeter. Um, he's a PhD in medieval history. He's a company secretary. And his company really value him. But there was a day when he heard Greg Hasman preach. And he thought, having heard that, something ignited. One day, somehow, I've got to give my life to that. And that might happen to you. Because that's what happens. Passion generates passion as fire generates fire. So I'm going to get passionate because I love preaching and tell you why. Well, the most obvious answer why I'm passionate about preaching is that it's vitally important. So we're going through 2 Timothy. At the end of 2 Timothy, the last letter he writes, the next time he goes through the prison doors, it's likely to be his, to his execution. He writes to his beloved son in the Lord to encourage him, exhort him. These are the last things I'm going to say to you, Timothy. And he ends with this rallying cry. Let's move on. Next one. Good. <laughs> With his rallying cry. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. You can't underline how important something is. Look, you know, it's, nothing's more important, Paul is saying to Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and and the dead, by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Paul is saying, whatever else you do, make this a priority in your life. And he does that because he thinks it's vitally important to the health of God's people. Uh, earlier in this letter, as we just heard, what does Paul say to Timothy? Equip other people to teach. When he says farewell to the Ephesian elders, he tells them, I'm never going to see you again. I'm 
I know trouble is coming like you've not seen before. And he says this, I commend you to God and the word of his grace. It's like, in all the things that are going to happen, it's going to be the word of his grace and you are elders. He's talking to elders. What's the one gift that is a criteria of eldership? There's lots of character things, but the gift is you've got to be able to teach God's word. And whether you call it teaching or preaching, in the, I have to say, I'm not passionate necessarily about a particular way of doing preaching. Because we tend to make this a narrow thing. It's like what we do on a Sunday morning. In, in, in the New Testament, preaching covers a whole multitude of getting the word across to people. Someone with a gift of teaching and preaching, shoving it, making it appetizing, getting it to God's people. But he says, you've got to be able to teach the word. Trouble's coming, teach the word. It's the end of my ministry. I want you, Timothy, teach, preach the word. Preaching is not a cure-all, but is vital. I was listening to Steve Tibbet, who I used to work with uh, not that long ago, and he said, we tend to see every problem in the church through the lens of our gift. So if you're a leader and there's a problem in the church, you think it's leadership's the answer. And if you're really pastoral, you think, oh, the real answer is pastoral care. If you're a preacher, you think the answer is always preaching. Well, it's not only preaching that will change people's lives, but it is vitally important. Um, One of the most moving accounts of the impact of preaching that I have found is in John Piper's book, The Supremacy of God in Preaching. I think it might be the first book I ever read on preaching. And he says in the introduction that at the beginning of the year, one year, he decided to preach on Isaiah 6 and on the holiness of God. And unusually, he felt constrained not to give any application, just to display the magnificence of our holy God. What he didn't know in his church was a family going through the shock and mental torture of finding out one of their children had been sexually abused by a close family member. Some weeks later, the father of that child came to him and said, John, this has been the hardest months of our lives. Do you know what's gotten us through? It was the vision of God's holiness that you gave me the first week in January. It was the rock on which we stand on. Preaching can do that. That's why I'm passionate about preaching. And even when... Preaching doesn't have such a dramatic effect. It comforts the mourning, strengthens the weary, puts courage into the timid. It brings hope to the despairing. It corrects the wayward. It feeds the flock. It challenges unbelief. And it ignites faith. That's why I'm passionate about preaching. But look... Let's look specifically why Paul says 
what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And he says, preach the word. Whatever else you do, preach the word. And uh, this is what he says. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Paul knows that individual Christians, even though they are filled with the Spirit and they have access to the Scripture for themselves, left on their own, we are too easily blown off course. Tossed, as he says elsewhere, to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And we can end up shipwrecking our faith like Hymenus and Philetus. The truth is that we all have somewhere in us an aversion to truth. And if you know any transplant patients, you will know for the rest of their life they take anti-rejection drugs. The very thing that will keep them alive, their body is trying to reject. It's amazing how quickly we forget and reject and distort biblical truth. It does surprise me, sometimes in sort of leadership conferences, where we don't pay attention to the problems the New Testament church has, thinking that somehow that's just the New Testament church. Churches founded by the Apostle Paul in Galatia, he has to write this to them, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. You would have thought people who have known the overwhelming power of the Spirit and have been taught by the Apostle himself wouldn't be prone to go off track, but they were. All those dear Thessalonians who I really love. <laughs> They'd had Paul there. They'd been planted by Paul. He had taught them, amongst other things, about the second coming of the Lord Jesus. Jesus, But left to themselves, some of them are going, oh, what about these poor Christians who have died and the Lord hasn't come back yet? Are they going to miss out somehow? And there's some Christians in the same church who are wondering if the Lord Jesus has already come back in some secret way. That's what ha We are prone to go off track on our own. Preaching is like Steve said, is a plumb line. It brings the truth to us. Oh, no, that's it. That's how you apply it. That's what it means. Gifted teachers and preachers have the role to help the church and individuals not be blown off course. When we don't pay attention to this danger, preaching becomes superficial. If I can be provocative, sometimes we are giving Sunday school level answers to sophisticated questions that our culture poses and then we wonder why people are blown off course because we haven't given them enough to stay on course this requires ah blown off course that's where i should have gone <laughs> so it really messes the bit you know you're getting into power <laughs> This requires, the next slide, constant vigilance. 
You need to be passionate about preaching because you have to think about it, Lord. Otherwise, we do go off course. Once, when I was on a holiday, on a Greek island, it was very nice, they gave you sailing lessons so you could go out on one of these little dinghies. And it's obvious if you know anything about sailing, but I never really thought about it. But when I got in the dinghy, I realised like the only time this dinghy was actually like pointing at my destination was when I stopped. Because the rest of the time in sailing, you're not pointing in the right direction. You're tacking this way, and then you're tacking this way, and you're hoping that in the end you end up over there. I think, as preachers, we have to be aware of when we change tack. Because at different times, the church needs different aspects of the truth sort of emphasised more. But even... An aspect of the truth emphasized for too long, too much, without course correction, will blow people off track. So I, grew, I was born in 1952. My first encounters with church were in the 50s and early 60s. The problem in the evangelical church then, I would suggest, was dominated by legalism. What you wear, did you go to a pub, did you smoke, became like the marks of whether you were spiritual. And you could feel a bit condemned, especially if you're a working class boy in a middle class church. If you didn't conform to what the middle class church did. Now, this was a lovely church and it brought me to Christ and gave me a love for the Bible. But there was legalism that had to be addressed. And so it was just wonderful to rediscover the gospel of grace. And that it's not dependent on who I am, and it's not rule-based. It's the spirit in us. There was freedom and delight. But brothers and sisters, I don't think that's our major problem. I mean, legalism is always lurking somewhere. I don't think it's legalism. I think it's license. When you talk to Christians who are shocked that you think that they shouldn't just leap with anyone and it's like you're shocked I'm shocked <laughs> how because not that grace in itself was taught wrong but they have misheard it they haven't had it corrected you have to change tack not by tr balancing grace don't you hate that when someone says we have to balance grace with our do do doctrines no you don't you have to preach another aspect of grace the grace of God teaches us to say no to sin and ungodliness and um, I think one of the great emphasis of recent years is that um, to know God as Abba Father, that we are his children, it talks of intimacy. It talks about his loving disposition to want the best for us. And that's been, for many, a releasing thing. But sometimes that goes too far. I don't know about you, but I've met people where that has bred a sense of entitlement. Mm -hmm. That I'm a prince of the great king. So why should I expect anything that's not comfortable or easy? Not that you don't teach that God is father and you are his son or your daughter, but you teach other emphases in that. You know, 
I was looking at the Gospels. The two times where Jesus clearly has his sonship, sonship affirmed is at his baptism and his transfiguration. Behold, this is my beloved son. Now, I'll just be controversial if you don't mind. It wasn't in a worship. It was at the point of his commitment to sacrifice his life. He identified with sinners at his baptism. He talked about his exile on the transfiguration and his sense of God being his father was confirmed to him and to those around. He said, this is my beloved son. Do you want to know God as your father? Then be a son like Jesus. And you need that emphasis. In fact, I'm, in my file, I have an Evernote file where I put all the ideas that I would love to do some more work on. I've got a, a, a sort of the beginning of a sermon on the temptations of a son of God from the temptations of Jesus. I think from the temptations of Jesus, you know, when you have a great sense that God is your father and that you are his child, so straight after his baptism, this is my beloved son, he goes into the wilderness. He's tempted to entitlement. Turn these stones into bread. You can do that. He's tempted to presumption. Throw yourself off this and the angels will catch it. He's tempted to arrogance. Don't you deserve that all the nations of the world just bow down to you right now? Knowing that God is your father, that he loves you passionately and intimately, we need to emphasize. But there comes a point where you have to be found in the other note. Sonship is sonship like Jesus. It's obedience when, even when it's costly. It doesn't mean entitlement. It doesn't mean arrogance. It doesn't mean presumption. It means hum in humility, surrendering yourself to the will of the Father. It demands constant vigilance and only passionate people invest the time and the prayer and the thought to be vigilant. I, I love good worship, but I don't know if they sing out of tune sometimes. And if someone gets a wrong note, it doesn't bother me. That means I'm not passionate about worship in the same way. Do you get it? But when, it, this is just a quick five word. Someone gets up and says, as it says in Matthew, and they quote something, it's not Matthew. <laughs> Why? Because I'm, I'm passionate. I can't, I'm not saying, I don't always say it to them. I don't go yell out. But it's like, no, no, this is important. What is it that makes you like, if you want to know where you're passionate, one of the things is where do you put your energy? What excites you? When you talk about it, do you get to the front of your seat and go like this? Yeah. And also, what frustrates you to death? <laughs> that would tell you something about what you're passionate about. I'm passionate about preaching. And people who are passionate are constantly vigilant. Preaching, what you do on a Sunday, underlies the values that you want in your people. It tells you this is core. If leaders in the church are not passionate about preaching, the word of God gets sidelined. Side 
And I always think, when I do the teach the doctrine of Scripture, I always talk initially, I think, about Josiah and his reform. A good king in a corrupt nation. He's a good king. He wants reform. But you know what happens? In his reform, he does a spring clean of the temple. And when they're spring cleaning the temple, they find the book of the law. They think it's the book of Deuteronomy. They lost the Bible. Now, when you lose your car keys, you don't lose them for very long, do you? Because you use your car very often. They not only lost the Bible, they forgot they lost the Bible. So what's this book? So what does that mean? It means step by step by step, the word became less central until the point was when no one referred to it, when no one quoted it, when no one looked at it, no one noticed. Now, our churches are far from that. But you can take, year by year, steps in that direction. So, if you're church leaders, how much time, how much resource do you give to the people that teach in your church? Do you think it's absolutely central, not only that you have it, but it's the best that your team can do? Think about the number of hours that go into leading worship. The level of like skill and competence you expect of your musicians. The number of people hours that go in each week to those to provide good worship on a Sunday. How many hours go into preaching? How much time do you allow, you know, you relieve whoever the preacher is of other responsibilities so they can give as much time as they can that they can be the best they can, because this is important, to show that you are passionate about preaching. It's not just something we need to do, but it's, as far as we can, the best we possibly can do. This is what John Stott says, in summary, about the importance of preaching. Um... In his book, um, I Believe in Preaching, not only has God brought the church into being by his word, but he maintains it and sustains it, directs and sanctifies it, reforms and renews it through the same word. The word of God is the scepter by which Christ rules the church and the food with which he nourishes it. It's important. Two other things I think, I think it's important to do well is because good preaching is a catalyst, should be a catalyst to stimulate other people's appetite for the word so that they read it for themselves. And a model of how to study scripture and how to handle all sorts of other ideas that they will hear. In an age where you can download messages from all over the world, you can watch God TV or its equivalent, you, your people, our people, are listening to all sorts of things. And preaching is not the only way they're going to get God's worth applied to them. But in preaching, you can help them to evaluate what they get elsewhere 
and decide is this truly in line? Is it cutting the scriptures straight? Because I think more and more that is so important because they're not just listening to us on a Sunday. And the other thing is I think however much I want that all the people in Exeter Grace Church are reading their Bible in depth every day. I know that's not possible and they're not always doing it. So this would be my aim. I would like to give them a feast on Sunday. So if that's the only meal they have, it could keep them going through the rest of the week. So it can't be just a blessed thought. It's got to be the best I can deliver from this passage. That's what makes me passionate about preaching. But I have to tell you, however important preaching is, it's not the only reason. And if I'm honest, it's not the major reason that I'm passionate about it. In my um, cabin at home, my study, I've got this sign that Val gave me. It says in Latin, which is posh, isn't it? <laughs> Docendo dissimus. Fortunately, in little letters at the bottom, it translates it. By teaching, we learn. Why am I passionate about preaching? Because I learn so much. Uh, there are many other things important in church life. Kids work, youth work, worship, great administration and ops, mission. All of those are important. And as a church leader, I want to encourage it. I want to help. I want to support that as much. But I'm not passionate about those things as much as I'm passionate about preaching. Because it's something I can do that seems to help other people. I can't do those things. Um, my bandwidth is very narrow. <laughs> There's Dave Rogers down there working hard on a sermon, I think. We're hoping, um, we're working with Dave to discern if God should come and uh, be the pastor at Grace Church. And, uh, you know, he's a bit intimidating. Don't he can close his ears. Because he can lead worship. <coughs> he's good at the tech side. He's got an op sort of brain as well. And he preaches really good. <laughs> Some of you are like that. You are, you're multi. I, I can't do much. Just ask my team, the team I'm in. But I think I can do this. So I'm passionate about the thing I can do. And it helps others. And it brings me joy. And that's the secret. Really, this brings me joy. Because I love learning. I love learning about scripture. I love learning how to communicate effectively. I love to recognize and respond to the spirit as I'm doing this. And I'd want to take a few minutes. Um, we're going to go over time, so that's fairly normal for me. <laughs> Passion and lack of self-control in this area is quite understandable. The, jo the joy of study. I love learning about Scripture. I love learning generally, but I love learning about Scripture. I, that's why I'm passionate about it. If I, there comes a time when I'm never asked to preach, I'm going to round up stray cats and dogs and train them to be attentive or look attentive <laughs> so that I can preach them because preaching gives me the excuse and the incentive to study and to learn. There's a whole load of things in my Evernote sort of preaching ideas that I'm hoping someday I'll get an opportunity to preach on those things because I want to learn about them. I've got some scattered ideas, but when I get to a preach, I have to bring those ideas together and read some things about it and get something 
And I love that. I love. I once met somebody. I was talking about the Book of Romans, and they said, oh, yes, I had 10 hours of lectures. It was at a very good sort of seminary in the States. I've had 10 hours on Romans, and I've got that down. <laughs> it's like, well, that's it. You know, I've done that. I know all about it. I think, don't you know there are ocean depths here? There are... There are connections that I've not seen, but I know are there. There's a tapestry, and this is just a little thread, and if I can follow that through, it will lead me to glorious things. So that's what I love, the discovery when you're, you're preaching and studying. Exodus 1, first time I ever preached on that, I'm preaching through it. And I'm, at that stage, I was always doing the cross-references in my Bible. Exodus 1.7 says something like... Um, the first few verses, you know, they came down to Egypt at 17, they grow to be a multitude. But Exodus 1.7 says, they were fruitful, and they had multiplied, and they filled the land. Now, you might go, oh, it's obvious, it wasn't to me. Fruitful, multiplied, filled the land. I'd look at the cross-reference. Where does that happen? Again, where's that said? Oh, it's that's what God said to Adam and Eve. That's what God said to Noah as he came out of the ark. And in a way, that's what he said to Abraham. I went, oh my goodness. That's like, exploded that. And then I thought, promise to Abraham. What else did God promise? He promised that those that bless you, I will bless. What happens in Exodus 1? The midwives who couldn't have children, they were barren, protect the children of the children of Israel. And at the end, it says, and God gave them children too. They blessed what God was blessing, and God blessed them. That gave me a whole new dimension, not only just for a preach, but for my own life. If we bless other people, God said, I will continue to bless you. That's what, if you've seen this entrance um, of CityGate, it's, it has a sign up which says, blessed to bless. That's the promise to Abraham. I love when I get those discoveries. Like, give me another. I've got, yeah. We'll move on. You can tell. I love learning. And then if you're a teacher, once you've learned something, you can't stop but tell somebody. So one of the reasons I preach is so I don't bore Val, who's sitting in the back. Because I've got to tell you this, look at this, look at this. I can't understand people who read all sorts of wonderful things in the Bible and then keep it to themselves. So, well, go do something else. Yeah. <laughs> I can't not tell you what I've just found in this incredible book that is so rich and so powerful. And you think, I've been doing this for 49 years and I think I scratched the surface and I want to... By the way, I'm just hoping that in heaven you can study. <laughs> I mean, if there's nothing to learn when you get to heaven, I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> There's the joy of study. I've got to there. The next one is, is, I love to learn about communicating. How to communicate effectively, clearly, compellingly. I love that moment when you see someone and the lights go on in their eyes. And they, you can see the penny drop. Something that they have not understood or heard God say to them before. It happens as you're preaching. You go, bingo, I would, I would pay money for that to happen all the time. Because the thrill of that is just enormous. And I have to say, if you're a preacher, we are spoiled because church folk are the, some of the most sympathetic, patient, forbearing, yes. and forgiving, yeah. forgiving listeners. And many have developed the gift of looking attentive <laughs> <laughs> while they're planning next week's schedule 
or deciding what colour to paint the lounge or where they're going to go on holiday. So that we don't get always, I know some of you get bad, you know, we sometimes get bad feedback. Most time we don't get, that was, not, that was a bit boring. <laughs> to know God has spoken in scripture and he can continue to speak through you as you preach is for me one of the most thrilling experiences there is. But preaching needs not only to be biblical, it must be clear and compelling. My mum stopped going to church at one stage and thought she wasn't a Christian because she got bored in the sermon. And I said, Mum, we all get bored in the sermon. And there's always a little voice. She's in heaven, so she's not bored anymore. The little voice in me and goes, would Mum get enough out of this message? Would she? But I've also had the chief scientist of the Met Office sitting in the congregation, and I want to preach so my mum gets something, and that um, my friend John Mitchell is provoked and stimulated and encouraged to leave, live for God. And preaching could do that if you do it well. But you have to think about not is it tr only true, but is it clear, is it compelling? And uh, let me just... Four books that I found really helpful about communicating the truth. Made to Stick by Dan and Chip Heath. Uh, communicating for a Change by Andy Stanley. Talk Like Ted. What a great title. It's an, an, an analysis of great TED Talks and Preaching That Connects. And uh, all of those are about communication. Two of them are by preachers. Two of them aren't. Sometimes people that write about preaching are really boring. I mean, it's all worthy. You go, yes, yes, that's important. I need to know that. But it doesn't make me get excited. But good communicators make me excited. Preachers, don't be lazy. Invest in the gift that we have. Besides wanting people to be changed in the moment, which is Tim Keller says should happen in preaching, I also want them to go home with their hearts aflamed and their minds buzzing with truth so that they will think about it at least through the next week. Now, I've got a little video. It's about 10 minutes. Are you going to stick? You can go if you want. But this is by Mark Forsyth. Uh, he's, uh, as far as I know, he's not a Christian. Um, he wrote the book, The Elements of Eloquence. And this is about how to say things that are memorable. And uh, as you'll find out, he's really good at communicating. He's not very good at prophecy. Okay, and uh, it is 10 minutes. I, I love this. I watch it a lot. Um.
There's no wit, there's no wordplay, no... There's, it's just a guy saying his name in a slightly funny way. And he could have said the same line, or communicated the same information in quite a lot of other ways. He could have said, the name's Bond. First name, James. And it wouldn't have worked as well. Or he could just have said, my name's Mr. James Bond. Or, hi, I'm James Bond, I'm here to kill you. Or whatever. <laughs> but Bond, James Bond, somehow works. Now, I don't know how many people here know the famous line, Sweet Home. Nobody? That's because there is no such famous line. But everybody here, I'm sure, knows the line, Home Sweet Home. Start out a song title and it's now on 10 million and one doormats scattered around the world. <laughs> home Sweet Home. And um, I don't know how many people know the famous line of poetry, My Captain. But you do all know, Oh Captain, My Captain. Because if you write it like that, you end up in the dictionary of quotations. And it's the same with anything, you know, burn, baby, disco, inferno, there is a word missing. And it's quite, you probably noticing a pattern for me here. And it's quite odd how often you can come out of a film or um, a song or a poem and the one line you remember follows this little structure. It's um, yeah, baby, yeah, or fly, my pretties, fly, or Zed's dead, baby, Zed's dead, game over, man, game over, or even in Hamlet, go to Hamlet, the most famous work in English literature, and the most famous line in Hamlet is to be or not to be. Now, Shakespeare could have written that, communicated exactly the same sentiment in any other way. He could have said whether or not to be, or to be or not. <laughs> and it wouldn't have worked. Now, if you've noticed a pattern in all this, that you aren't the first people to do so. In fact, the ancient Greeks noticed this two and a half thousand years ago. The ancient Greeks loved looking for patterns. And they noticed that when you went phrase something, A-B-A, it became memorable and famous. Not because it said anything more, not because it communicated anything. It just, it was a formula for making a great phrase which stuck in people's minds. And this was one of their figures of rhetoric. And that's what a figure of rhetoric is. It's a little formula for making it effective a great phrase, without having to actually have anything to say. <laughs> and this is what the ancient Greek education largely consisted of, was learning these formulas. And that's also what Shakespeare's education largely consisted of, in the Elizabethan grammar school system. He spent his time learning the figures of rhetoric. So the only difference there between Shakespeare and Quentin Tarantino is Shakespeare knew exactly what he was doing. He had that trick in his back pocket and he was absolutely ready to go. And there are loads and loads of these figures of rhetoric. And the weird thing is they all still work. I wrote a book of Edmund's developments in which I listed 39 of them, but there were loads. And some of them are just go on forever. So for example, there's a great one called Progressio. And in Progressio, all you do is you say something, then it's opposite. Something else, then it's opposite. And you just keep going on and on. And in my, to my mind, one of the most beautiful and moving passages in the Bible is Ecclesiastes chapter 3, which um, you may well know, it's often read at funerals, because there is a time to be born and a time to die, a time to weep and a time to rejoice, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to plant, a time to uproot, and it goes on and on and on like this. And exactly that information could have been communicated with the phrase, there is a time for everything. <laughs> But the progressio makes it beautiful. And 2,000 years later, Charles Dickens used exactly that technique in almost exactly the same way to write what's probably his most famous passage, 
the opening of a tale of two cities, where it goes, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was a time of wisdom, it was a time of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity, and so on and so forth. And even today, the greatest contemporary poet working in the world, to my mind today, and I'm sure you've heard of her, is Katie Perry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. Who wrote a very beautiful and moving progress here that went, you're hot, then you're cold. <laughs> you're yes, then you're no. You're in, then you're out. You're up, then you're down. You're wrong when it's right. Black and it's white. We fight, we break up. We kiss, we make up. And the only way to really appreciate a great writer like God, Dickens, or Katy Perry is to <laughs> see, see them as working as part of this two and a half, several thousand year tradition of the thinkers of rhetoric. And in terms of Progressio, that takes in, you know, Paul McCartney, you say stop, I say go. And it takes in Gershwin, you say tomato, I say tomato. You say potato, I say potato. By the way, I'm English. Nobody says potato. <laughs> nobody in the world says potato. It's complete nonsense. But nobody cares that it's complete nonsense because it's part of good progressio. A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B. Uh, now, you're probably all wondering what this has got to do with Donald Trump. <laughs> because frankly, in this country at the moment, a guy can't buy a drink without somebody asking him that question. And the answer is an awful lot. Because the American electorate is quite peculiar. They have a very, very strong attachment to one particular figure of rhetoric called chiasmus. <coughs> now, chiasmus is a very simple thing. It's when you say a sentence forwards, and then you say it backwards. It's easy to do, and to do it is easy. T for two, and two for T. It's not the men in my life, as may well said, it's the life of my men. Now, uh, the current resident of the White House, Mr. Obama, um, used this very beautifully, he did very well, he was addressing some uh, group of veterans and he said, you stood up for America, now America must stand up for you. And your previous president, Mr. Uh, George Bush Younger, uh, said, if we cannot bring our enemies to justice, we must bring justice to our enemies. And the president before that, Clinton, said, people the world over have always been more impressed by the power of our example." than by the example of our power. And I, I'm not sold on that one. I prefer Ronald Reagan. The difference between us and them is we want to check government spending, and they want to spend government checks. <laughs> Paul Carter said, America did not invent human rights in a very real sense. Human rights invented America. And you may well be thinking ahead of me here now to John F. Kennedy's great inauguration speech, which is just chiasmus after chiasmus after chiasmus. Mankind must put an end to war, or war will put an end to mankind. We must never negotiate out of fear, but we must never fear to negotiate. And most famously of all, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And indeed, this goes all the way back to the founding of your country, and indeed the existence of this city, the American Revolutionary War. Um, the British under General Howe took Philadelphia, and that was a big crisis because the French were considering giving up on the Americans because it looked like we were winning, nobody wants to support a loser. And that, if they had given up, that would have changed the course of history. But luckily for the Americans, 
Benjamin Franklin was in Paris, and he simply told the French, General Howe did not take Philadelphia. Instead, it was Philadelphia that took General Howe. And the French all went, oh, such a lure, that sounds so good, we will continue to support <laughs> And hence the USA. Now, I'm not saying here that anyone who can use chiasmus can get into the White House. I mean, Mitt Romney had a go at it, he tried. Um, freedom requires religion, just as religion requires freedom. Not quite sure what that means. <laughs> and uh, Sarah Palin had a go with some politicians, use change to promote their career. John McCain uses his career to promote change. But no president, by the way, I just want to point out here, the dream ticket, my dream ticket for the White House would be Billy Ocean. When going gets tough, the tough get going. With economic policy being sorted out by Snoop Doggy Dog. With money on his mind and his mind on his money. <laughs> but in my lifetime, nobody has got into the White House without a good chiasmus. And I've been checking up, and I may have missed something, but so far as I can tell, only one of the current candidates has a good chiasmus. And that is um, Mrs. Clinton, who said... The test of a politician is not the speeches that they deliver, but whether they deliver on their speeches. And therefore, I've got to predict with absolute certainty that that's your next president. Because if an American can master chiasmus, chiasmus can make them master of America. <laughs> now, you may think I'm being a little bit flippant and cynical here, and perhaps I am, and a lot of you will probably be thinking, but shouldn't politics be all about the issues and the policies and the facts and the figures? And yes, I'm sure it should, but it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> Rhetoric is what makes anything you say memorable. Rhetoric is what makes what you say stick in people's minds. Rhetoric is what persuades people of your position. Rhetoric is what provokes emotions. Rhetoric, have you noticed here, I'm stopping every single sentence with the same word. That's called anaphora. But in all seriousness, rhetoric wins votes, votes gets you into government, and in government you can actually change the real world. That's anodiposis, by the way. Fear leads to hate. Hate leads to anger. Anger leads to the dark side. <laughs> but with rhetoric, simple rhetoric, we can have absolutely nothing to say at all, but we can at least say it well. Thank you very much. <laughs> We can have absolutely nothing to say, but at least we can say it well. We've got something to say. That's life-changing. That has eternal significance. Why don't we learn to say it well? Put the time and energy to think about how we craft what we say so that the truth is attractive, appealing, compelling. You can't ignore it. And I know um, some of you listening to this are getting a bit agitated, especially after that video, say it's all funny, but didn't Paul say something like, when I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence and human wisdom? And, you think, and there's been a sort of trend, like, if you, especially if you're like, reformed and believe in the elect, you can tell who's elect, you preach boring sermons, and the elect still get saved. 
That is to, um, that's a doctrine of sovereignty that you have to sort of attack against at times. But if I can be cheeky for a moment, if that's in your head or if that ever gets said to you, just say to the person that says, you know, you shouldn't bother about how to say things well. Uh, say to them, I don't think you really understand what Paul said. I think you haven't studied the word enough to find out the truth of what he's trying to communicate. Because surely the man who wrote, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things in the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things in the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world to do, and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. The man who wrote that, or he wrote, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, it does not boast, it's not proud, it does not dishonour others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil, but always rejoices in the truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. That man cannot be saying... How you say things and write things is unimportant because these, those are beautiful, memorable, powerful, compelling statements. It gives me joy not only to study the scripture and find richness in it, but to find ways to try and communicate that. And I'm always trying to do that. Um, successfully or unsuccessfully, others can say, God is only the only one who can take human words and fill them with divine power. But we, to honour God, we must do our very best to communicate well. Boring, tedious, cliche-ridden messages do not honour God, just like poor administration and weak pastoral care does not honour. I want to honour God in communicating the truth the best I possibly can. And my final bit of joy, and I realised I was panicking um, because yesterday the seminar's finished at 12 <laughs> and today's seminar finishes at half half, so I've still got five minutes. So that means I've got a quarter of an hour. <laughs> I, the joy of knowing the Holy Spirit um, in planning series, in preparing messages, in the moment of preaching, I, I get joy. I get joy. I mean, I have to say, I think it... Forgive me, mums, okay? This, this is not a very good power. It's a bit like the joy of childbirth. I, there is agony before the joy sometimes. Actually, Thursday day, Thursdays is usually... My, Thursday or Friday is my worst day. Because I've done all the study. I mean, I could lecture on the passage, but I'm going... I remember once doing the golden calf in Exodus and, and saying out loud, Lord, how do you get spiritual milk out of a golden calf? I mean, I can tell you all about the history, but what's this... So recently, my last sermon was on the second half of Acts, chapter 1. The replacing of Judas, uh, the place that he vacated, with Matthias. And I got to a stage about Thursday or Friday where... I could give you the different, you know, I could explain to you the differences between Matthew's account of Judas's death and Luke's account in Acts, and where they're similar and where they're different, and the ways you could reconcile them, and whether you want to reconcile them at all. 
I could do that. I could tell you about the discussions about was it a mistake to appoint Matthias and was Paul really the 12th apostle? And also I'll give a little discussion on um, should we draw, why don't we draw lots because they did in Acts. I could do all that and I was thinking, I'm not sure that's going to help people. I mean, I think we might need to touch on those things, but how's that going to help anybody? And so I'm wrestling like, oh Lord, <laughs> what are we going to get at? In the end, as I wrestle, I get three points, which I was quite pleased about because that's not always clear I've got three points. I got something about, this passage can teach us something about what do you do while you're waiting for the promise? Because it's between the, Jesus saying you're going to be baptised and before the day of Pentecost. What do, what do you do in that gap? What do you do when you're confused and disappointed? At, uh, Judas had let the, you know, had done the unspeakable. And no one had expected it was Judas or any of them. And he had done it. Confused and disappointed. And what do you do when the decision's not clear? Of all the things that Jesus taught them in 40 days, he didn't tell them what to do about the vacated place. They had to work that out. I thought, thank you, Lord. I think that might help others because it's helping me. And there's a joy in that. It's like discovery. It's like, oh, I've got something to say and I think it's useful. I love it in planning series. Although we wrestled, we've been doing, we decided to do Acts this term. And Susie, who's here, is our kids' worker. We like, wherever possible, to tie our kids' teaching into our adult preaching. And Susie, and I've said, narrative passage should passages should be the easiest to do that. I mean, if you're doing Leviticus, it's a bit hard for the kids to do that. You know? But narrative should be easy. So, beginning of the summer, what are we going to do? I don't know. I really don't know. I'm sorry about this, but I don't know. Can't we just, you know, Susie didn't say this, but I'm, I can understand the voice like, can't you just divide up the passage and preach it? And I'm thinking, yeah, but I don't think, how much of Acts are we going to do? What should we do? Where are we? What, what should we emphasise? And in the end, we're only doing Acts 1 and 2. That's all we're going to do in our series before Christmas because I felt the Holy Spirit say, this, this, everything else will be good and true but not relevant. This is the heart of what I want you to say. And so that's what I was doing. There's joy in that. When, again, it's discovery. But the greatest joy is in the actual delivery. Don't you find? I mean, it's scary. And sometimes I crash and burn. But I have two pictures. One Val had years ago. I'm, in, I'm pastor of a Baptist church. And uh, it's particularly tough going. And Val said, I got a picture that when you got up and opened the Bible and started to preach, there was an angel standing behind you. A muscular, it's like mighty warrior, seven foot tall, standing there. And as you opened the Bible, he drew the sword and held it over the congregation. I mean, that's... Oh, my goodness. I, sometimes when I get up to preach, that comes back to me, and it's as though I can hear the sort of shh of the sword. Who wouldn't want to be involved in that? It's like, oh! And you can, sometimes you can see him. Some congregations are more responsive. I'm still, we're still trying to warm up Exeter. <laughs> I, I think that's because they're, they're all, lots of them are graduates, you know, so they're thinking. Um, when I was in London at Catford, especially one of the meetings which was the most diverse, you knew if you were making connection because people would shout out, they would clap, they would cheer. 
Thanks for the red flag. <laughs> but whether they look like that or not, it's like the sword of the spirit. That helps me when I'm preaching, especially if I'm feeling a bit flat. The Lord's going to unleash mighty spiritual forces as his word comes out. The other picture is the picture of hang gliding. I was once with our walking along a cliff top and um, you know, there's a sheer drop to the sea and there are hang gliders on the top of the cliff and it's quite windy but they're testing the wind to go like this because they're waiting because they've got to make sure <laughs> that the wind's going to catch them and they're going to fly because otherwise they will, they will do damage. And uh, do you ever get, if you're a preacher, do you ever get that? You've got this. Um, sometimes on a Saturday night, I think, I've got the message. I wake up Sunday morning and think, is this all I've got? <laughs> you know, it's like I've got a bit of metal and I've got a bit of material and I'm supposed to fly with this? But you put it all together and you stand there and you stand at the edge as you get up to preach and you say, Lord, if you don't fill these sails, these words with divine power, this, is, this will be a horrible accident. <laughs> <laughs> but then, all being well, you launch out and you can feel the spirit doing something that you couldn't do. But you're part of that. That's what I'm passionate about preaching. Because it gives me great joy. Many things are really important. There are many things I can't do. But God in his grace has given me some ability to do this. And it gives me joy. So am I passionate about preaching? You bet I am. And I hope this might have stirred that in you. That it might give you some encouragement. If you're feeling weary and tired and think, I'd like to feel like that. I once felt like that. Well, find out why. Are you overtired? Find somebody else to take a slot. If it's boring to you and dull to you, guess what? It's probably going to be dull and boring to others. And if it's just beginning to stir something, get some training. Apply for one of uh, the courses that Tim heads up. Read books. Invest in this. Because for me, it's one of the greatest joys of my life to be involved in preaching and teaching and doing that as well as I can. Preaching is a great joy for me. I hope it is for every preacher in commission. And I'm only four minutes over time, which is like amazing. <laughs>